The Dow Jones traded down 1,000 points in six minutes on Monday, then whipsawed back 600 points on a Thursday, while China loses all of its gains for 2015 in the span of a few weeks, despite direct intervention by the government to stop the decline on a scale never before seen in history. Do you really think those are signs that it's business as usual? Well, welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based, no-fees uh, investment within the tech industry. Lots of details if you go to soleraclub.com. A couple of quick questions before I get to today's comment. Is your goal to support a best practices approach to government policy, or is your goal to support a specific political party? If your allegiance to a party or specific group like organized labor or big environment is your goal, then by your own definition, finding solutions to our most pressing problems is secondary. And this is the group that dominates our public discussions in the media, public school system, universities, and other public institutions. That's why the media's regular approach is to take an issue and then get representatives of each party to comment. That's politics and has nothing to do with reviewing the best policy options, which may include government not taking action. And I'll tell you, if the ratings of mainstream media outlets are any indication, then clearly many people are increasingly turned off by this approach. I mean, it's hardly surprising because it has nothing to do with them. This is a self-serving approach for the benefit of special interest groups and political parties. And it's also boring. So with that in mind, let me get to my comment. The question is, Are you ready to say, are you continuing to say, it's business as usual? Because that's what the political industry is saying, and it's dangerously wrong. The problems go beyond the dramatic drop in government revenues because of the fall in resource activity. By the way, a note to Alberta, your deficit's going to be a lot closer to 7 to $8 billion rather than the projected $5 billion that the political class talks about. It's about a lot more than the 30% pay cut every one of us as Canadians have taken compared to our American counterparts over the last two years. It's about more than the double-digit decline in the TSX this year, despite the late-week rally. These are all symptoms of a bigger, and I'm sorry to say it's a scarier problem, but it's the one you have to understand, and that's global deflation. Global deflation brings asset prices down and creates, it's going to create the next leg of the debt crisis. And by the way, just understanding that we're in a deflationary period has been the basis why on Money Talks, we've got the oil price drop right. We got the the drop in other commodities, including uh, gold. We accurately predicted the interest rates would fall in January 2014 when virtually every analyst predicted they'd rise. And the basis, by the way, of predicting the drop in the Canadian dollar It's understanding the deflation context and all the other investment themes followed suit. Including, by the way, the very clear prediction that we've been making that in the last quarter of this year we'll usher in the next leg of the debt crisis. Central banks are scared to death of deflation, which is why they've created unprecedented amounts of money out of thin air and pushed interest rates to record lows. That's what they're fighting. The point is that we've already actually seen deflation, which makes the probability of a major credit crisis more likely. I mean, come on, it's already happened in Greece. They're scared as hell in Italy and Spain and Portugal. My, well, I could, sorry, I could throw in Brazil, in Venezuela, Malaysia. The list is a long one. My bet is that France isn't far off either. 
Now, the probability of a debt crisis in emerging markets, I think, is next on the list. But back to your answer to my original question. If your interest is in supporting a specific political party or special interest group, you're not going to like what I'm about to say. Because what's being proposed during this current federal election campaign is more than misguided. You see, in a deflationary environment, and we've got record levels of government debt, worldwide debt, it's extremely dangerous to raise taxes. That's actually the opposite of what we should be doing. Raising taxes is always deflationary. We don't want to exacerbate the deflationary trends that are already there. We've seen this policy mistake before, right now, in Europe. Europe's problems of low growth, excessive debt, and high joblessness, they've all been exacerbated because taxes were high, and then they increased them. Raising taxes is an assault on economic growth at a time when growth is the only way out of the debt and unfunded liability problem. Yet that's what provinces and municipalities throughout Canada are doing. And it's what's being proposed at the federal level during this campaign. And I'll tell you, only someone whose main concern is political rather than practical would propose that. I can't Words absolutely fail me here. Raising taxes in a deflationary environment is a disaster. It's absolutely the wrong direction if you understand economic history, but let's go to common sense. There's only one way out of the problems, especially the unfunded liability problem. You can run the numbers on literally taxing anyone who makes say over, uh, like, our our 1%, rather, takes place at about $215,000 now. We could tax 100% of their income, ain't solving the unfunded liability problem. Only economic growth can. Well, in a deflationary environment, that's what the key is because it's exacerbating our challenges. You cannot raise taxes in that environment. Despite all that's going on, though, we simply don't seem to understand that we are living in incredibly perilous times. That's what the market action of the last week told you. There's massive consequences for enacting the wrong policies. I'm going to take a break. Hey, coming up today, Don Velo is going to be with me. I'm looking forward to this. Hey, one of the foremost experts when it comes to seasonality married with technical analysis. Hey, there's a lot to talk about. Hey, it's supposed to be a a period of seasonal strength for gold. I'll ask a mistake on that one. i got Robert Levy on deck, though, with the top three stories that smart people are talking about. And in just a couple of minutes... I'm going to tell you a number about your health care system. We all say we care about health care. Well, wait till you hear these numbers. We'll do that right here on the Chorus Radio Network. I was just sitting here thinking, I, I talk about something like a deflationary environment, and one of the questions I get is, well, what do we do? Well, that's all we talk about on Money Talks is to prepare you for the kind of changes that we're living through whether it's increased civil unrest, which we clearly outlined on this show. We had Martin Armstrong several years ago tell us that February 2014 would usher in a new level of geopolitical tension. He predicted correctly the invasion of Ukraine several years early to what you should have your money in. Obviously, that's one of the main thrusts of this show, but we've already been talking about it. That's why we said get out of Canadian dollars and have a good chunk in U.S. dollars. It's part of understanding the deflationary trend. It's why I consistently have said buy the highest quality dividend payers once they get above 45 to 5%. Why? Because in deflation, interest rates stay low. 
That's why we said stay away from commodities. So when people say, well, what do you do? Well, that's what we talk about. And another note, you might find this interesting, just an anecdotal discussion I had with a friend of mine who is sophisticated in business, been very successful in business. And somehow he felt he was going to outsmart these markets in that way. You know, he's going to pick a bottom in the commodities and it was going to V back up. And uh, you might be interested in my response. I was very brief. I just said, you're an idiot. These are major trends that we're dealing with. Rob Levy joins me on the line. Speaking of big stories, he's here to talk about the top three stories that smart people are talking about. Rob, I guess there was no shortage of choices, but what did you pick as number three? Well, I was picking with number three this week was China, Mike, and right or wrong, but perhaps maybe a more contrary view this week uh, in, compared to recent weeks, but it's David Rosenberg of Glustin Chef suggesting perhaps the China fears are overblown. Well, I, you know, it's interesting to have that view, and I've read a few other commentaries like that. I can tell you I, I completely disagree that they're overblown when it comes to commodity problems. Uh, you know, the, their demand has been about 40% of the base metals market, for example, over the last several years. Well, clearly that demand has waned. The market isn't mistaking that. And so you've seen this big de- uh, decline in commodity markets, which has a knock-on effect of what's going on in the rest of Asia, uh, in the emerging markets that we've chronicled clearly on this show. So, yeah, I don't agree with him. Why is he saying it? <laughs> And that's certainly a good point. And I do have to, to give Rosenberg credit. We have to specify someone and say he's not talking about picking a bottom and say the Shanghai or the Shenzhen yeah. index. But what he's talking about is the impact that it's going to have on the rest of the world. And maybe there's some level of isolation to maybe the American exchanges. And I think that's where he's suggesting the fear is a little overblown. But he, his comment particularly was media and Wall Street team seem to harp on the, the bad news instead of the good news and taking it from a former bear. He can relate to that. But he, it's his point that maybe there's not going to be the same fear of contagion that the market is suggesting or pricing it at this point in time. I think it's a great point he's making. I mean, that's exactly what we need is we, you need to hear these opinions. And obviously, uh, Mr. Rosenberg's a very bright guy. Uh, very interesting guy too. So I love to hear that. I mean, uh, that's that's a talking point that we should be debating because it's clearly. I don't think he disagreed that this is a very important subject. What about number two? Well, number two, and we touched on it last week, but I think there's been more important discussions on it, and it's raising uh, ranging discussions on whether the Fed will be able to hike interest rates at that September 19th meeting, and some going even further, saying the Fed's got to restart quantitative easing. Well, it's interesting because uh, obviously we've, I think, correctly chronicled on this show, thanks to Victor, thanks to Michael, and uh, a number of guests that, hey, all we're really trading, as Victor says, is Federal Reserve policy. I mean, that's the number one thing that people are watching. And it's funny, though, when you mention about the interest rates, absolutely right, of course, that that's that's been proposed, the September rate hike. But boy, Rob, I I don't have any trouble finding someone to tell me, like, right now, it's not happening, and someone else, a very bright person, saying it is happening. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And these comments are interesting because they come from guys like Ray Dalio, who runs one of the biggest hedge funds in the U.S., a $200 billion hedge fund, suggesting, you know, there's more deflationary pressures in the world and issues with confidence in these markets that the Fed might have no choice but to do another stimulus program. So it's big names. It's not just small-time guys throwing yeah. out a suggestion there. So it does lend some credence to it. 
Well, the other one that, that, that you just alluded to that I think is very interesting is there's talk of another quantitative easing, that in fact, if we are going to get this contraction that we're seeing, that the, that the stock market is sort of a, a foreshadowing of that, then, hey, the Fed won't, uh, won't hesitate to step in. But that's kind of the opposite of raising interest rates. Those, those are the two sides of a coin there. One is, hey, we're going to raise interest rates. The other is, no, they're going to actually enter the market again in a quantitative easing program where they're going to buy you know, assets and try and flush more money into the system so where do you stand on this and where are you coming down yeah i still think the fed's looking to hike so i think these guys are out there i think they're wrong and i think the reason is that we saw this week in particular the strong u.s gdp numbers and yeah. the fed's going to be data dependent if we get a strong payrolls report next week for september i think the fed's looking to get off zero rates so i think these guys are on the other extreme I agree they're desperate to do that. It's just going to be very interesting if there's a knock-on effect from what's been going on the last uh, several weeks. Uh, and it's back to your first uh, topic is, is China more significant or, or significant enough to put them and say, you know what, we'll hold off to December. But right on. I mean, that, that's arguably the biggest story as we come forward here in the next couple of weeks. But what's number one this week? Uh, number one is we have to talk about the equity markets. Uh, you had the Dow posting its 10th biggest a daily drop of all time, and then only two days later to have its biggest two-day rally in six and a half years. Just massive, massive volatility in the equity markets. And, and once again, you're getting this major disagreement. On the one hand, you got guys saying, hey, uh, you know what, this was really overblown. And you've got other people saying, no, actually, it's justified. So, I mean, it's again, I mean, that's normal in the market to have disagreement, but it sort of gets focused as you come to the end of the week. It does, and I think I, I listened to Mohammed Alarian speak quite a few times this week, and he just puts it so eloquently, and I think he sums up what we saw in the markets very succinctly and nicely, is first of all, it's global markets rebalancing for a lower level of global economic growth, and, and just the valuations were simply too high. The second point he makes is because this is stemming from emerging markets, those aren't the places where you see the quantitative easing. You don't have the circuit breakers to restore confidence, mm-hmm. so if that's the case, there could be some further downside volatility and prepare for it. Yeah, on the other side, though, you've got people saying, holy smokes, uh, you know, we've come down too far too fast. We've got to have even a bigger bounce than we've experienced. Yes, yes. And one name in particular was Jeffrey Sy, the chief investment strategist at Raymond James. He said, basically, uh, the statistical uh, move that we saw in the markets was one that you see once in a generation. So it was just... Mm -hmm too far too much oversold to the downside that there is more upside uh, as you suggested yeah let me finish that with just saying hey your job and we've been chronicling it hit here for the last six to eight weeks saying hey look being defensive at any time is never a problem when there's this level of uncertainty remember victor came on about three weeks ago he said he can't remember the last time he was in cash and uh, i still say you'd review your portfolio you make sure that you're not taking a disproportionate amount of risk things have moved so you go hey you know what i'm not comfortable there anymore and especially if you were panicky kind of in the first couple of days of this week then hey this rebound is a chance to get down to a level of risk that you're comfortable with but rob i don't think there's any chance that we're going to see an end to the kind of volatility we've been experiencing so uh, you're going to have a lot more choices coming up next week perfect that's perfect <laughs> Okay, Rob, thanks for taking the time. I'll take a break. I'm coming back. You know, Canadians always put health care as their number one thing, but do we really know any of the numbers? Especially how much does it cost you? I think you're going to be surprised. Stay with me. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, I've got Don Vialo. First off, though, I want to chat with you a little bit about uh, health care costs. It's nice to know the facts, I think. 
It's always been a joke to refer to Canada's free health care. Well, there's a new and I think very interesting report by the Fraser Institute points out what public health insurance actually costs each of us. Of course, it's anything but free. And keep in mind that the numbers I'm about to give you, give you only reflect what's covered under the Canada Health Care Act, what governments pay for. So in most provinces, you have to add on the cost of prescription drug, chiropractors, uh, naturopaths, methodist therapy. Now, you could be covered by a workplace pension plan, and uh, many in the public sector are, not near as much in the private sector. But for the rest of us, we're only talking really about a, a small, not a small portion, a significant portion, but there's more to add on to it. In 2014, government spent, by the way, about $141 billion on health care. Now, the number that grabbed me right away was the cost escalation. It's rising 1.6 faster than the average income. Now, because our income tax is steeply progressive, which means the higher income earners pay at a higher rate, the amount paid toward health care differs really dramatically. It depends on your income. For example, we've got 8 million Canadian taxpayers who actually pay no income tax. So obviously the amount they pay towards health care is limited just to a percentage, for example, of GST and PST, payroll taxes, any other fees that end up in government coffers. I'll give you some examples here. So for families earning just about, say, 14000 I'm going to round off the numbers. For 14000 they pay about $475 a year, while a single parent with two children earning, say, 53000 pays about 4600 a year. Let's just keep going. I'll give you some other examples. The average two-parent, two-child family earning, say, one hundred and nineteen grand, which puts them in the top 5% of income earners, they're going to end up paying about $11,700 for the health care. That's uh, this coming up this year. Did you hear that? So $119,000, you pay about $11,700. Now, if you have just one child, by the way, on that, you pay just over twelve grand. What about if you're single, though? And if you're single and you're earning about $42,000, well, the cost is $4,200. It's interesting, though. I know several adults or young adults who are uh, just entering the workforce and uh, who found that number really high. They might be lucky to be making forty-two grand in a professional job in their first years out, but they're going to pay 4200 plus in health care costs. Of course, their feeling is, hey, I never used the system. Well, I suspect that's actually the case for a lot of people, you know, 30 or under or whatever. And by the way, for a family of four, this is the upper income, top 1%. Actually, it's a fraction of the top 1%. And let's say you put them at earning two hundred eighty-two grand. Well, they pay thirty-seven thousand plus to healthcare. Anything, anyways. The point is, by the way, and it scares provincial governments and the federal. The scary thing is that those costs have more than doubled over the past decade. And you got an aging population now. You got new technology. Hey, there's no reason to think this trend is not going to continue. But as I say, healthcare in British, uh, rather in Alberta, I was going to say in British Columbia, in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Quebec, you name it, it's anything but free. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back. Hey, I got Don Velo, timingthemarket.ca. I got a lot of questions. I'm going to nail them. Or where are we at with the market? Is this part of the seasonal trends we should expect? Especially when you talk about gold and oil. Much more to come. Stay with us right here across the Chorus Radio Network. <laughs> 